there, I'm Vicki Howell, and this is a Craftish Extra. Just think of it as a little auditory appetizer to tide you over until next week's full-length episode. This extra was actually inspired by a little recent family downtime. Our house is full to the brim with Star Wars fans, like probably most households, although I, I think that mine might might overflow. We have fanboy-ish overflow, actually, and fangirlish. My daughter's just as into it. All the children in the house um, are in it to win it for the entire franchise, and my husband is what you call a super fan. And I knew that when I married him. I mean, he's got tattoos with Star Wars related symbols of one form or another. I should have known then, although I have to admit that I did not know that that meant that we would be talking about it every day. Every single day. But I digress. <laughs> so the other day we were watching the bonus features for The Force Awakens, which as a side note is actually really interesting from a designer and artisan's perspective because uh, some of the features include um, focuses on costume creation. Um, I had no idea that the um, sort of undercoat of Chewie's costume was actually knit, or not the undercoat, but the undersleeve. Pretty awesome, if you ask me. But Anyway, we just got to talking about um, the still untitled episode eight movie, which is currently in production, which will be directed by Ryan Johnson. And Ryan Johnson also directed the movie Looper, um, for which I had the opportunity to interview him for, for my husband's movie website, um, Smells Like Screen Spirit. So this was, I want to say maybe two years ago at South by Southwest, or was it was it the Austin Film Festival? It's, it was something filmy and Austin-y related. So uh, he was here and we got to sit down at the Four Seasons Hotel and have a little chat. And we thought it would be fun to pull the audio from the interview to share it with you today. And in it, we uh, he and I talk about the craft of filmmaking, music, growing up in Southern California, and also about time travel. So I hope you enjoy it. For a folk artist, a little banjo. Spit take. Just a hobbyist, yeah, but yeah. You're in a band. No, I got. Um, it's my cousin Nathan, and we we record songs. It has a name. Together. You're in a band. All right. The preserves. Okay. okay. You should check it out. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm a mother. Don't sass me. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> and you play banjo, and that's not necessarily an aggressive instrument. <laughs> I disagree. I disagree. Okay. All right. I do have a point. I promise. Bring it. <laughs> Behind the orange curtain, let's just say, or San Clemente, yeah, yeah. one of the safest cities. Yep. In that area. Very much so. Folk, hobbyist, mm-hmm. um, favorite movie, or not favorite movie, but one of the most influential influential movies of your career, you've said, is Annie Hall, mm-hmm. romantic comedy. Sure. Ish. Sure. But every single major project that you've been attached to has been a crime <laughs> project, and I find this fascinating. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, well. Do you see how I did the jaunty? Tell me more. No, but is there, I mean, I find that really interesting because given the movies that you direct or write, I would have pictured maybe a little Trent Reznor Nine Inch Nails. A tattooed tear coming down. Not that much. Not that we're not too (laughs) No, but I mean, maybe Silver Lake. Like, just, it's really interesting to me. So I want to know, and just also being the same age and thinking that I might know some of the movies. 
that I would have guessed would have influenced you. Right. Well, but the thing is, those movies probably did influence me as well. Like Annie Hall was one I talked about, and I, I love that movie. But you know, I also did grow up watching noir films. I, I love Fincher's work. I love you know, I do love probably the stuff that you would uh, more readily equate with 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 crime films. But I think it's important to also love other stuff and let that stuff flow into even even time travel crime movies. For instance, this movie Looper, you know, it, it probably owes more to the movie Witness than it does to Blade Runner or anything dark. And, and for me, that's what's interesting is when you can take one genre and then let the influence of something else kind of blow into it. Um, Tell me more about that because Witness is not necessarily a parallel that I would have seen. Well, specifically for the back half of it, you know. Kelly McGillis movie, right? Kelly we're McGillis on the same, movie, we're on yeah. The same page. Okay. So Witness starts as a noir in the city, starts with this right. crime story that starts right. the engine going, and then it moves out to a farm where it's the rough guy from the city, the single mom, and her protecting sure. her son, basically. Sure. So, and when it moves out onto the farm, what's incredible about that movie is it loses none of the tension of the first half. You're just as tense out on that farm, waiting for the city elements to catch up with you. Right. And so that has a lot to do with kind of where we go story-wise in Luber. So that was something I really looked at. And, and, and diagrammed bit by bit. And I don't know, and growing up in San Clemente, it, it is a, you know, it was a really bright, beautiful, clean beach town. You know, it was a really nice place to grow up. At the same time, as a teenager, I don't know, this, it, Twin Peaks was, was coming on. Yeah, yeah right. It, it, it must have hit you at exactly the same yeah. time, kind of in high school. And I was obsessed with Twin Peaks. And the, 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 and the kind of darkness beneath the surface, you know, which is something Brick, the first film I made, it's it's a film noir, but it's set in San Clemente. It's set exactly in that world, yeah. and it's kind of about um, finding weird, dark stuff just underneath that. I guess the contrast of that with, you know, kind of a fascination with like darker material, I I think is tends to intensify both of those things. I think that if you're just all dark. Yeah. That's not that interesting. But if you have kind of a bright side to you and a dark side to you, the place where those two things meet, that's where the most interesting art is created, I think. When you were writing Looper, just as a, as a child of the 80s, was it, I mean, they're of course very, very different movies, but was were you at all influenced by movies like Back to the Future or the Scott Bakula, you know, yeah. remember Quantum Leap? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Any of that time travel was a huge thing when we were kids. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of, ingra it was ingrained in my childhood. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, mine too. Yeah, and in that way, all that stuff is, is, is baked into it. And when I started writing it, especially because time travel is such a difficult thing to work into a story and have it feel like it makes sense and have it not just take over the story with all this explanation of time travel. I went back and looked at movies that did it really well, like Back to the Future, you know, or like, um, you know, the first Terminator was a big one that I looked at, or 12 Monkeys. Um, and so, yeah, you want to look and see how, uh, you know, how more talented people than yourself handled it and handled it well, and then and then you steal from them, and that's how you, <laughs> how, well, how you work it Conversely, were there any things after looking at all of these movies that I think influenced anybody from that from that age and beyond? Were there any things that you looked at and you said, you know what, that doesn't work for me, or I could do it differently, if not better, mm. differently? Well, it's, the, the needs of the story were very different than a lot of the movies that I love. Like, for example, Primer is a time travel movie. It's a small movie that this guy Shane Carruth made. It was a, it's a fantastic film. It's one of my favorite films. It's, it's definitely one of the best time travel movies ever made. But part of the, what that movie is about is kind of digging into the intricacies of all these different timelines. It's about kind of the pleasure of untangling the logic of what these guys are doing. 
doing. And that's the exact opposite of what Looper is doing. And so, um, you know, it, it's not so much about saying, looking at something and saying they did it badly, how can I do it right? It's more seeing how people did it well to meet different story needs and seeing what my specific story needs were and, and shaping it that way. And what was the most difficult part of that? I mean, what, there's, there's got to be a lot of challenges to writing and directing something when the space-time continuum is at, yeah. is at the very core of it. Yeah. I mean, just continuity alone, but yeah. what, what are your biggest challenges? The biggest challenge is figuring out what to explain and what not to explain. Because even when you have a... And Looper has a relatively simple time travel setup. It's it, Again, it's like the first Terminator where... The movie it takes place here in this present day world, which is near future, but it's present day. Time travel doesn't exist here, it only exists in the future. So they only have things flung back at them and they have to deal with those things. They don't have the ability to zap around in time. So that makes it relatively that makes it easier. Yeah, it makes it much easier at the same time. There's a dozen things that you can you can explain away that you just can, you think oh we'll throw in them one line of dialogue to explain why this is that way another line of dialogue sure. is good and you start doing that and it becomes like stamping out little fires and suddenly your movie is filled with all this exposition that may be interesting and may answer a question that somebody may ask in the car ride home but at the end of the day it doesn't really matter for the story that you're telling and so it just it takes. Do you just, make yourself crazy with your checks and balances of that kind of thing? Yeah, you really do. You really do. And you have at the end of the day, you have to err on the side of being brutal. You have to err on the side of if this isn't something that is literally driving the f story forward at this moment, even if it's interesting, and even if it's going to yeah. be a question that remains unanswered for the audience, you have to let it go. you're not going to spend seven words addressing it because you got to keep moving. Right. So when you're working with actors like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis, who are at least on paper, very, very different actors. Yeah. You've got, you know, a tough a guy that's known for being a tough guy. Diehard movies from when we were kids, of course, done a million other things. Um, and and you're working, you know, with a younger guy who's fresh, extraordinarily talented, triple threat, yeah. but very, very different. Yeah. How do you direct them to play the same person without it becoming? Cartoony. I always like an think impersonation. I, yeah, 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 like an yeah. impersonation. Like I don't know if you ever took drama class when you were kids, but yeah. they had the mirroring exercise. Right, right, right. And yep. it seems like it would be extraordinarily difficult as a director to not direct that way. Well, I mean, I guess my big job as a director was hiring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the actor. Once that was kind of the hardest thing that I had to do as a director, and that was very, very easy. So, so it, what I'm saying is Joe really did all that heavy lifting, and. I mean, part of the answer to it is that Joe wrapped himself around Bruce. You know, it was, it was all about Joe saying, I'm going to create a character that you could believe as a younger Bruce Willis. And not only did we do some makeup to adjust his face, but the bigger thing is Joe studied his mannerisms. He listened to his voice. He, got mm -hmm. in, he developed this performance where he wasn't imitating Bruce, but he was creating a living, breathing character that you could buy as a younger version of the character Bruce was playing. Does so, that feel like a gift? as a director? Oh my god, yeah, absolutely. But every performance, I mean, that's that's what you're, 
when you're when you're casting, that's all you're trying to do is give yourself gifts. You're trying, that's like right. that's what that process is about: is finding actors who are going to take it farther than you could ever imagine, who are going to do things where you know you need them to be done, but you don't even know how they're going to be done and, and figuring it out together. Was he in your mind when you were writing this? Because you had worked yeah. with him. For yeah, well, we had stayed really good friends since we made Brick together. So this was kind of oh great, this is something we can work yeah. together on. So you had him in mind for the character. Did you have Bruce Willis? No, no, we didn't think of Bruce until we got into casting. And then he was the first, you know, he was like the first person we went to with it, and he, he said yes immediately. It was kind of disconcerting. How important was, had you gone in thinking that you were going to alter his face? Yeah, I had always thought that no matter who we cast as the older guy, because it's a sci-fi movie, we take that extra step and kind of adjust him a little to make him look like whoever we were we were casting against him. And because he looks so unlike Bruce, we actually had to go subtler with it than we might have otherwise, because we had to say, okay, we're not going to make them look alike alike. We're just going to pick a couple features and just mm -hmm. subtly adjust those, and, and the audience is going to have to make a leap. Yeah. People who already are fans of your work, what are some Ryanisms that they can count on being, <laughs> being in the film. I don't know. I don't know. My, name, my name in the credits, no, I No, but you, you have to have a stamp. I mean, you... No, you re no I really don't. I, that's an, an honest answer to that question is, is no, absolutely not. I don't think you, if you think about it in those terms, I think you're in trouble as a director. I think all you have to do is tell each beat of the story as honestly as you possibly can and any personality that's unified in terms of your voice or whatever that comes out of that is a byproduct of that it's it's the same way that you just speaking me speaking to you in order to communicate somebody might hear that and recognize it as my voice but I'm not consciously thinking I'm going to shape my R's this way I'm going to do this I'm going to pause here it's just the way I talk so no I think you absolutely can't think of it in terms of my stamp or whatever I don't think any great directors do. I think you just, you know, even directors who have intensely, you know, even more so than me, there are directors who more so than me have, like, really obvious footprints. I don't even think they're thinking of that. I think it's just their voice. It's just the way that they tell stories. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. Okay. That was fantastic. I hope you dug this craftish extra. If you know someone else who may be into it, please share it with them. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on iTunes so we can reach more listeners and then make more shows. Stay tuned for the next full episode of Craftish, which will go live on Tuesday. Until then, breathe in, craft out.